Uh, Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to meet and to read your words. Father, I pray that you would help me uh, be faithful to the words that you've given us. And Father, I pray that as we read them uh, and speak about them, um, that we would hear your voice. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Well, when uh, Barack uh, Obama was re-elected in 2013, he gave his uh, inaugural address. And uh, in it, he said, We are true to our creed when a little girl born into the bleakest poverty knows that she has the same chance to succeed as anybody else. The idea wasn't new. Uh, He was speaking of equal opportunity, uh, perhaps that American dream, uh, speaking of a meritocracy. The idea that the good things in life health, wealth, uh, prosperity, um, were distributed according to merit, not because of who we knew, but an even playing field. I guess most of us will subscribe to a similar idea in our day-to-day lives. We long to see that even playing field, and we're dismayed when we're confronted by obvious injustice. In Britain in 2009, the British Social uh, Attitude Survey asked people how important they thought hard work was when it comes to getting ahead. And 84% of people said it was either essential or very important. Encouragingly, encouragingly in his book, Outliers, Malcolm Gladwell argued that there are no naturals who just rise to the top without any effort. Everyone works hard. He popularised the idea of 10,000 hours uh, to become an expert at something. So he said whether you look at Mozart or the Beatles, to Steve Jobs. Talent alone was not enough. enough. His conclusion was that successful people work harder. Indeed, they work much harder. It took them 10,000 hours to become an expert at whatever skill uh, they had. And uh, for those of us that are parents, or perhaps remember our parents speaking to us, um, we do the same, don't we? We tell them you've got to work hard at school. If you work hard, you'll get good grades. Good grades will mean a better university. A better university will be a better degree. A better degree will give you a better job. You'll be more attractive. Uh, You'll be healthier and more secure. It sounds a little bit ridiculous when put like that. But isn't that what we believe and what we teach those around us? It appeals to our sense of fairness. Deferred gratification is our preferred way of life. Work hard now and reap the rewards later. Leave after the boss Um, so that you get that promotion and pay rise later. A session now at the gym rather than dessert before you go on holiday in four weeks' time. No wonder our disappointment then, when we're passed over for our promotion, our exam grades are not what we hoped for. Um, And it's accompanied by a sense of injustice when we look around and we see that some people just seem to be rewarded despite really making no personal sacrifice. Well, we saw some of this last week as the Pharisees were aghast as Jesus chose to dine with Matthew. They felt he was a sinner, a corrupt Roman collaborator, and yet Jesus was prepared to eat with him. Well, Jesus' response was clear. Uh, He had come for just such sinners, and in God's eyes, the Pharisees were no better than those they chose to look down upon. They too were sinners in need of God's help. And in today's passage, it's John's disciples' turn to ask a question of Jesus. So look at verse 14 with me. Their question is this, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? 
Now, the Old Testament only commanded fasting on the Day of Atonement, but there are lots of other examples in the Old Testament about fasting. Good, faithful Jews often fasted, and this was particularly true when the people of God faced death or judgment uh, or when mourning. And alongside that existential threat was a sense of their acknowledgement of their helplessness and that they needed God to deliver them. At this point in the New Testament, there appears to be, uh, fasting seems to become a slightly more regular practice for both John's disciples and the Pharisees. It's said that they fasted twice a week, in contrast to Jesus' disciples, who appeared not to do so. And it might be worth noting that Matthew has already touched on this just a few chapters earlier. Um, if you were here last year uh, and heard uh, our series on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, in chapter 6, cautioned those fasting to ensure that no one can tell that they were fasting. A practice seemed to have uh, developed such that people tried to look disfigured when fasting um, so that people would commend them for their piety. So back to the question of John's disciples' confusion. At best, they appear unsure as to why they are fasting when Jesus' disciples don't. But given what has gone before, perhaps it's a question of frustration and a sense of injustice. Don't you recognize our efforts, Jesus? Are we on the right track? Are we ticking the right boxes or are we just wasting our time? Well, our first point is that Jesus is the one we have been waiting for. Jesus' response to their question suggests the answer should be clear. Why don't my disciples fast? Well, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? Now, I fully anticipate the need to fight back a tear or two should my daughter Isabel one day get married and I have to deliver the father of the bride speech. Thankfully, she's assured me she's never going to get married and she's going to live with me forever. So that's still right, is he? But should she get married one day, I hope that her wedding day will be one of great joy. Just as I delighted in marrying my wife Fiona on our wedding day, I hope Izzy too will delight in marrying the man that she loves. But what sort of day would it be if traumatised by the thought of losing Izzy, I arrived dressed in black, weeping and wailing during the vows and beating my uh, breast during the reception. It would frankly ruin the day for all concerned, and if so, it would be better if I stayed away. But Jesus' use of this marriage analogy would have had a much more significant meaning uh, meaning to the original readers of Matthew's uh, Gospel than just conjuring up some sort of generic happy experience. You'll remember that one of Matthew's chief aims in writing his Gospel was to assure Jewish Christians that Jesus was the Messiah the Old Testament promised. So when Jesus describes himself as a bridegroom, those listening would have immediately known that he was referring to the Old Testament theme of the marriage between God and his people. That is why we read chapter 54 in Isaiah earlier. So turn back to to that chapter with me. It's on page 741. Verse 5 says... For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. Matthew had been helping us make the link between Jesus and the promises of the Old Testament. In the previous chapter, when Jesus calms the storm, his disciples ask, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the uh, waves obey him. Well, the answer is that the winds and the waves obey their maker, the Lord Almighty. And how else does the creator describe himself in Isaiah 54? but as a bridegroom, a husband to his people. And not just a bridegroom, 
but a redeemer. For your maker is your husband, the Lord Almighty is his name, the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. Now, if we were making the story as a Hollywood film, we'd expect the casting director to search for the most beautiful actress they could find to play the part of the bride. And yet what makes this all the more extraordinary is that Israel is no beauty. Indeed, she makes the ugly sisters of Cinderella appear an attractive proposition. But Israel displays no redeeming qualities. Rather, Isaiah has been revealing that Israel is a wayward and stubborn people. They don't trust God, they flirt with idols, and injustice reigns within their borders. They have chosen to reject God, and so now they're sitting under God's judgment. Isaiah reveals to them that soon they're going to be conquered by Babylon, and then they're going to be carried away into exile. Their physical separation from the land and Jerusalem and its temple will reflect their spiritual separation from God. They're reaping what they sow. And yet, against this backdrop of despair, amongst the despair and judgment, they are told of a wonderful hope. God promises to rescue them. He will be a husband who will call back his unfaithful wife and love her. I know exactly what you're really like, says the Lord. Not just the obvious faults, but even those secrets you try to hide from everyone else. But I am going to rescue you. No wonder Isaiah tells of this, uh, of this marriage as a time of celebration, with singing and shouts of joy. The barren woman will have many children. Why don't Jesus' disciples fast? Well, why would they? It's been 700 years since Isaiah's prophecy, and although partially fulfilled with a return to Israel, they're still awaiting for the bridegroom who would rescue them. For 700 years, they've been waiting for news of his arrival. And now here he is. This is the one they had been waiting for. Here are Jesus' disciples living with the bridegroom who would rescue them. God himself. They ate and drank with him, talked together. They hung on his every word. Why would they want to miss even a moment of this? What could their old lives offer them that could compete with this? Just like Matthew, Jesus' disciples had answered his call to follow me and they had left everything for him. Jesus' disciples saw that here, finally, was the one they had been waiting for. Well, in his famous experiment, the psychologist Ulrich Neisser filmed a video of two teams of students passing a basketball back and forth. He then superimposed another video of a girl walking right across the basketball court carrying an umbrella. Now, one team uh, wore black shirts, the other white shirts, and what the subjects were asked to do was count exactly how many times the black shirts passed the ball to one another. After they submitted their answers, they were asked, who noticed the girl walk across the court with an umbrella? And 79% failed to notice her at all. And numerous experiments have demonstrated this phenomenon of selective attention that causes us to fail to see what is right in front of us. We're too busy concentrating on one subject that we fail to see anything else. And perhaps this phenomenon applies to John's disciples also. Now, maybe their question was a polite way of uh, challenging Jesus and his religious credentials. But is there not a sense that they're seeking to assure themselves that they will make the grade? 
As a result, they fail to ask the question they should be asking. Who is Jesus? Jesus answers their question by saying, why do they not fast? Can't you see? Because I am here, the one you've been waiting for. I have come for you, and so we must celebrate. For all the outward markers uh, of John's uh, disciples and Pharisees that made it look as if they were seeking God, they appear to be in danger of failing to see him as he stands before their very eyes. They seem to know what they're looking for, and they've decided that he is not it. And perhaps that's a danger for some of us today. The world bombards us with more ways to find joy and happiness than we could possibly hope to investigate in a lifetime. Religions of all different shapes and sizes, self-help books, worldly success, material possessions, relationships. Each one of these claim to offer the joy that Jesus' disciples seem to have found. In this day and age, the message is loud and clear. There is no one way, no absolute truth. It's for each and every one of us to choose our own path. If you're unfamiliar with church, perhaps the danger is you never really get around to considering who Jesus is. After all, there's a lifetime of opportunities to explore uh, meaning. Uh, <coughs> sorry, sorry um, a lifetime of opportunities to explore, uh, meaning that you may never get round to actually paying attention to what Jesus has to say. Or maybe Christianity's position on issues of the day, such as sexuality or the poor behaviour of Christians, means you discount Jesus without ever really looking at him. But what about about, uh, those of us in church, the so-called religious of our day? Who do we most easily identify with? The disciples of John or Jesus? Is our faith a joy or a duty? How easy it is to assure ourselves by the number of times we attend church, fellowship dinners, small groups, the number of rotors we serve on, our giving, our quiet times, the list could go on and on. And yet, are we really passionate about it? Do we know the joy Jesus' disciples seem to have grasped? Or are we left feeling that our experience is somewhat different? If so, will you look again to Jesus? Jesus answered John's disciples with a question. And it's the same question that he asks every one of us. Am I not the one you have been waiting for? The one who can replace despair with joy? Did I not say I would come? Come and eat with me. Well, what follows this extraordinary invitation uh, to feast with Jesus is a stark warning, which is our second point. Jesus alone can save us. Now, in a world of disposable fashion, the very idea of repairing clothes may seem somewhat old-fashioned. But no doubt we've all had that experience of buying clothes that fit perfectly when we first bought them, only for them to shrink as soon as we wash them, leaving them too small to be of any use. Likewise, if a threadbare cloth is patched up with a new patch of untrunk cloth, as soon as it's washed, the patch shrinks, and the fragile old threadbare cloth will be torn apart and we'll have just wasted our time in trying to repair it. In the same way, when new wine is fermenting, yeast is converting the sugars in the grape juice into alcohol and carbon dioxide. So many of us will remember the hilarity of shaking a bottle of Coke before passing it to your unsuspecting friend. There are no children here, so I won't say what I said this morning, which is this is not hilarious uh, to parents, parents, particularly when performed indoors. But a well-sealed bottle can comfortably contain the pressure contained by the carbon dioxide. But as soon as the bottle's opened, the gas escapes with the side effect of covering everyone nearby in coke. 
but an old skin is no match for a well-sealed modern bottle. The skin is dry and cracked, and as soon as it's filled with new wine, carbon dioxide is produced, the pressure rises, the wine skin splits, and the wine is lost. Jesus' point is that neither the old cloth nor the old wineskin is fit for purpose. Once upon a time, it performed its task well, but their lifespan uh, was limited. So too, the Pharisees and John's disciples appeared to be preoccupied with things of the past. As we saw last week, the Pharisees were fastidious in keeping the law, and then some. John's disciples, too, were no doubt brilliant law keepers, and both groups fasted in the belief that they would make the cut and find favour in the eyes of God, that they would be deemed worthy of a relationship with God. Their question to Jesus seems to ask, how are we doing? Are our efforts sufficient? Jesus' answer couldn't be clearer. No, I'm afraid they're not. In fact, they're nowhere near good enough. You need an entirely new approach. You see, no one had ever managed to keep the law perfectly. On the surface, the Pharisees and John's disciples looked pretty special. No doubt they believed their own hype, but they weren't perfect, as Jesus has reminded them just a few verses earlier. And no amount of fasting and self-sacrifice would make them righteous in the eyes of God, just as it wasn't enough for their ancestors before them. I mentioned at the beginning that the only required fast in the Old Testament law was on the Day of Atonement. Once a year, the people would fast in preparation for the atonement ceremony. In Leviticus 16.34, God commands them that atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. An imperfect, simple people were to be made at one with a holy God. So although Israel were God's chosen people, And although God dwelled with them in the temple, it was a relationship at a distance. Because of their sin, only one Israelite, the high priest, could actually enter the most holy place in the temple where God's glory resided. And even then, the high priest could only enter once a year on the Day of Atonement. The Israelites were guilty of sin. They deserved to die. And so there was no way they could approach a perfect and holy God. Instead, a substitute took their place. A goat was sacrificed. A life was laid down for their life, uh, for their sin. The problem, of course, was that it was never enough. The people kept on sinning. The sacrifice was repeated year after year. The Old Testament law was good in many ways, but it was never intended to save Israel from their sin. It helped contrast their sinfulness with the purity and holiness of God. The sacrifices pointed to their guilt and judgment and the need for a redeemer. It pointed to the need for a better, perfect sacrifice that would rescue those condemned to death once and for all. Well, who is this perfect sacrifice who would make atonement once and for all? Well, it's Jesus. He is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, the bridegroom redeemer of Isaiah 54. Remember how Jesus answers the question about fasting? His disciples are feasting now, but there is a time coming when he will be taken from them. Then they will fast. Then they will mourn. Why will they mourn? Because he's going to their death, his death. For that is why he's come. That is what he must do to redeem a sinful people. 
Well, last week we saw Jesus reminding the Pharisees of their guilt and judgment. This week he is at pains to remind them and us that there's nothing they themselves or we can do to fix all of this. To carry on trusting in the law uh, and its imperfect sacrifices is futile. Indeed, it will be fatal. No amount of modifications or improvements to the law will allow it to make us righteous. It is an old garment that cannot be patched up. Rather, it pointed us towards Jesus, who came to fulfill the law by dealing with sin once and for all, and to redeem his people through his death on the cross. See, Jesus is not an optional extra, a slight amendment to the old ways, or an extra insurance policy. Rather, he is the only means by which we can be rescued from our sin and our relationship with God restored. There is no other rescue plan. So do you recall what happened when Jesus died on the cross? The curtain across the entrance to the most holy place, through which that high priest went once a year, was torn in two, top to bottom, a sign that Jesus' perfect sacrifice could bring us back into relationship with God permanently. We started by discussing the merits of the meritocracy. Sounds good on paper, doesn't it? Particularly as we're inclined to believe we are worthy of merit. That is what the Pharisees certainly thought. And no doubt, I imagine, if you asked the average person on the street how we might please God, they would say, uh, lead a good life. It's for the same reason that so many would try to have us believe that all religions are basically the same. They all ultimately lead to God. But if we're honest with ourselves, which of us can hold our hands up and say that we've lived even up to our own standards today, over the past week? What about God's standards? Later in Matthew, the Pharisees asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? He replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And the second is love your neighbor as yourself. Which of us can say we come close to keeping God's laws? It should come as no surprise then that in a meritocracy, the Bible says the only thing we merit is God's judgment and death. Hence Jesus' warning that no good can come from hoping the law will save us. But wonderfully, the message of the Bible is not one of a meritocracy, but of grace. If we're trusting in Jesus, we get what we don't deserve. Instead, we receive everything because we belong to Jesus. No wonder John Newton, the slave trader, wrote that famous line in Amazing Grace, how precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. No wonder Jesus' disciples celebrated. So if you're seeking God, have you listened to what Jesus has to say? His invitation today is the same as it was then. I have come to rescue you in spite of everything. I love you. Will you follow me? Well, if you do, or if so, why don't you say yes to his invitation today? If you want to do that, do come and speak to me afterwards. But perhaps this is the first time you've really given Jesus much consideration, in which case we regularly run courses where you can find out more about who Jesus is and the claims he made. If you are familiar with Jesus, is there anything holding you back from giving up everything for him? The twin dangers in these verses are a failure to recognize the seriousness of our situation and the inability to rescue ourselves. 
That is why Jesus has come. Put aside everything that threatens to draw your attention away from Jesus and listen to what he has to say. What he has to offer is beyond compare. And if you don't believe me, let me point you to a Pharisee who did grasp the identity and call of Jesus. He once described his righteousness based on the law as faultless. His name was the Apostle Paul, and we read what he had to say about giving up everything for Jesus at the beginning of our service. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. And for those that have accepted Jesus' saving grace, don't be tempted to look back. Let us encourage one another to hold on to the joy we have in Jesus. If you're anything like me, the busyness of day-to-day life and the attractions of the world can sometimes just creep in and get in the way. Life isn't always easy. There will be times of fasting and mourning. But in Jesus, we have God himself, who has redeemed us and is sufficient for all our needs. Just as he promised us in Isaiah that he would come to rescue his people, so he has promised us that the next time he returns, it will be to take us to feast with him forever. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you know us, you know our faults, and yet you love us. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus, who came to rescue us. Father, we pray that we would know him and uh, that we would love the, the joyful experience of spending time with him and learning more about him. Uh, we ask this in your name. Amen. Oh,